0: But in general, what, we, what we're thinking about with character is not just a momentary action that you perform, like whether you told a lie in a given instance or you cheated in a given instance. We're talking about how you're put together psychologically so that in a wide variety of circumstances, you're going to think, feel, and act a certain way.
1: This is this, 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 this a word Damn. Let's be honest, talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes.
0: Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio.
1: Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This is Matt Burford. Uh, Welcome back. It's been a while since I've been on, but we have a great person uh, to start off, kind of a series that I have over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I actually was looking online to see about who's going to be speaking at the Evangelical Theological Society that happens every year. Of course, this year it's going to be online, uh, but one of the names that kind of stood out to me was uh, Dr. Christian Miller. Uh, was interested about what he's going to bring and what he was going to talk about. And I started to call some people that I know and ask them, what do you know about this guy? And just got high praise from everyone that I talked to. So immediately went to Amazon, started checking out his books, and I came across a book called The Character Gap. Uh, How good are we? And, of course, that kind of thing just really uh, interests me. So got the book. And then after reading the book, I contacted some guys and, and uh, told them about it, one of them being Travis Koblenz. Of course, you all know Travis Koblenz from part of the Tactical Fake Network. Uh, he runs the Wondering Towards Wisdom podcast. He's our resident scholar, PhD. He's our know-it-all. Uh, told him, you need to read this book. We need to reach out to him. Let's get him on a podcast and talk about you know, what he's doing, you know why he wrote this book, uh, some other things that he's doing. Um, just to let you know, Dr. Miller, of course, works at uh, Wake Forest University. Uh, you can get him off his website, which is christianbmiller.com. Uh, he also has a, uh, a couple of social media handles called The Character Gap. Uh, of course, you could just do a Google search on him and find him there. He is a prolific uh, writer. His publications are vast. He's got incredible projects. and in, in fact, he's an incredibly impressive person. Um, you're just doing such fun and wonderful things. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Miller.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I don't know how I'm ever going to live up to that introduction, but uh, I'll try my best.
1: Well, we're just we're <laughs> just so happy that you uh, you know you email me back and we're let's just get let's just get started. The character gap, this book. Uh, tell me what the process is. I know you you actually have won some grants, you've been looking at character and virtue for a while. So why this book and why now?
0: Sure, absolutely. So first of all, thank you for having me on your show. It's a real honor to, to speak to you with, uh, about these issues of character. I've been working on this topic as an academic for over 10 years. And so I've been writing academic articles and academic books. And then we were leading a project called the Character Project at Wake Forest University focused on academic research on character. As time went on, I thought to myself, it would be a shame if a lot of these ideas just stayed at the level of academia, where you know other academics might read them and engage with them, but they don't have a larger audience. And so I kind of said what I wanted to say to the academic world, and I thought, well, maybe I'll try my hand at writing a book that's much more accessible with no technical jargon and no number of premises, the kind of things that philosophers deal with. Uh, and, uh, and more stories and more anecdotes and more historical examples and that kind of thing. And so that's what, about five years ago, I began that process with no training. You know, academics are not expected to do this and not even uh, really rewarded to, for doing this kind of thing. Um, it was a risk, uh, but I thought it was certainly well worth it. And after a couple of years of working on this book, the output was the character gap. How good are we? It was published by Oxford University Press, and I've been really happy with it ever since. So the goal is to take these ideas that we've been working on and make them accessible to a larger audience with no background at all in philosophy, no background at all in the character research or anything like that, and just try and impress upon readers that character is important, it really matters, and that we uh, have a long way to go, typically, in improving our character. But there are some strategies we can implement to try and become better people.
1: Yeah, this is one of the things I told Travis. Of course, Travis has a PhD. I have a doctorate in ministry. It it read like a really good in-between both those kind of things. You know, it read almost like a, a doctorate of ministry praxis. And that and that's a good thing, you know, in in, in, this, in terms of this accessibility. Uh, you were backing a lot of your claims up with, you know evidences historical evidences and psychological there's so many things in the psych uh, i guess in the, in the world of counseling and psychology i didn't know that was going on in the 1960s that you were drawing from it really it, it meets uh, and actually touches a lot of different kinds of scholastic practices it is just a really neat book to get you a kind of a an entry point into the discussion of character
0: well you very kind of say that. that that was the goal um you know it, it it's not something that as a philosopher, I'm trained to do. We're trained to write a certain way to a certain very limited audience. So I, it took me a while to try to change my mindset and really be intentional in how I'm using my language uh, and not slip into words like traits and dispositions and objective morality and all these things, which are really important and which I would teach in my philosophy classes. But if I just threw that out there with no context, it would turn off the reader. So I really try to stay away from that jargon.
1: So let's get into it, and then I'll hand it off to Travis to uh, Dr. Travis here in a minute. Um, one of the things that I, I guess your main point in this book is is that we're it's not as easy just saying you're a liar or this person's a good person. Uh, let, let me tell you, growing up in Alabama, I mean I grew up with a deep Alabama moral tradition of don't lie, cheat, or steal. I mean, that was kind of a, m- my family's kind of saying. My dad, I grew up with, you don't want to lie, cheat, or steal. Or even worse than that, don't be a liar, don't and che- uh, don't be a cheater. So in other words, there's these binaries of you're either a good guy or you're a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're faced with the reality of growing up, there's just so much in between those two things right? Um, my dad used to, I mean, just watching my dad, who was a nursing ethicist, who was a nurse, uh, it would always come home and tell me, hey, you know, all it takes is one O crud to to destroy all attaboys. And his his point being, when you're in the thick of it, you're making these decisions all the time. And one day you're a hero, the other day you're a zero. And that's what kind of, po- that's what, when I was reading the book, I thought, yeah, this is this is starting to make sense of that tension of Growing up with an ideal, but then trying to get into the messiness, especially as a parent and seeing it from a parent's perspective. I have two children, uh, two teenagers now. It's even clearer to me that it's just mess. So when you're talking about the issue of virtue and virtue tradition, this is a messy thing, right?
0: Uh, That's right. So let me do a little prefacing and set up, and then I'll dive into the mess. Um, So there's first the question of, well, what is virtue and what is character? And that's that's a philosophical question. We need to kind of define our terms and be clear what we're talking about. And then there's the more empirical psychological question of, well, what does our character actually look like? How good are we really today? Uh, So on the first one, let's just be clear what we're talking about. We can say character comes in two forms. There's virtuous character and there's vicious character. So the virtuous character is the positive form. Those are things like being an honest person, being a compassionate person, being a just person. On the flip side there's the bad side of character that's the vicious side and you take those virtues and you invert them or flip them around so for honesty you've got dishonesty for compassion you've got callousness for justice you've got injustice but in general what we what we're thinking about with character is not just a momentary action that you perform like whether you told a lie in a given instance or you cheated in a given instance we're talking about how you're put together psychologically so that in a wide variety of circumstances, you're going to think, feel, and act a certain way. Now that's pretty abstract, so let me try and uh, unpack that a little bit more, and then we'll get into the, the messiness in a second. So an honest person isn't someone who just, in one instance, tells the truth or avoids lying. An honest person is someone who is disposed psychologically, so in their, in their thinking, They have certain motivations. They care about the truth. They have certain beliefs. They believe that the truth is important. And those beliefs and motivations combine to give rise to a certain pattern of action. So uh, consistently, in different circumstances, they don't cheat, they don't steal, they don't lie, they tell the truth, they do the right thing when it comes to honesty. So you wanna see, okay, not just in a one-off situation, but across situations, does a person tend to exhibit the pattern of behavior you would expect of an honest person? And are they doing it for the right kind of reasons, underlying motivation? Why are they doing it? Is it for good reasons or not so good reasons? Okay, so that's, that's getting clear on the, the bar, the, the, kind of the, the target, what we're aiming for, is to become a virtuous person, like that. Um, who's who's good and virtuous in their thinking, in their feeling, and in their actions. Well, if that's the target, next question is, how good are we doing at living up to it? Where, where do we measure up? Uh, are we real close to virtue? Are we real close to the opposite vice? Or are we somewhere in the middle? And now that's a very different question, and one I can't really answer just from the armchair You know, sitting and thinking really hard, Uh, I could go to a variety of different sources. I could look to history and historical uh, behavior of people in the past. I could look to current events. There's plenty of mixed up, messed up stuff in the in current events right now. Um, I could look to religious teachings, which are very important here. Um, Christianity, uh, in particular, has plenty to say about how good or bad we are. What I did in the book, though, was I uh, dove into the best psychological research that I could could find over the last 50 years. Studies which had people, lots of people, big group of people, put into different situations that would probe their character. So situations where they were given an opportunity to cheat, or to steal, or to lie, or to help someone, or to hurt someone, and see what happened. So would these people step up to the plate or were they not and what factors seem to influence whether they would behave well or not were they seeming to be paying attention to the right kind of considerations or were they being led astray by irrelevant factors in their environment and I'm happy you know I'll, I'll stop going on too long I'm sure but I'm happy to dive into those studies and give you some particular examples but the, to get to the to cut it short and to cut, cut right to the chase. What I found was, after looking at hundreds, hundreds of these studies, is that no one study proves anything, but that collectively a certain picture was emerging from this research, where um, I say, at least, the research supports us being a mixed bag. So this is the messiness, that most of us have a character that falls short of virtue but at the same time, most of us have a character which does not kind of descend to the the bottom uh, of vice, doesn't uh, erode. Uh, it's not it's not a vicious character either. So what that means is that in certain situations we'll behave admirably, in other situations we'll not behave admirably. Sometimes we'll be motivated for the right reasons. Sometimes we won't. Um, but we have a long way to go to be virtuous. But thankfully, we're not as bad as we could be. And Maybe I'll stop there and see if I put a lot on the table there, what, what direction you might want to go on, go from, from there.
2: Yeah, I, w- I would like to ask you, uh, I, g- I guess uh, the way you describe us reminds me a lot of the, the, and this has nothing to do with contemporary politics, but with the democratic man and Plato's Republic. And so uh, the democratic person is this person who just whatever desire happens to arise at the time, you just, whatever happens to be strongest at the time, you, you run with it. And so sometimes the democratic person could be good, sometimes it could be bad. You know, if they smell cinnamon rolls or cookies or they just came out of the bathroom, they might be, they might be good and I'd love to get back to that. Um, but I guess the, it seems like it's, if, my, if my goal were desire fulfillment, wouldn't it be better to simply, uh, or, or you might even say happiness. If happiness is my getting my desires fulfilled, why would I want to become virtuous? isn't it easier to just run after whatever particular desire happens to arise? And so if I happen to be walking by a Cinnabon who is not a sponsor of this show, um, and, uh, and uh, I suddenly feel happy because it reminds me of Christmas or something, and I help a friend in need or a stranger in need, but then the, I see another person and I don't like them, so I don't do that. It, aren't I, isn't it more efficient to be how we are, without a, without a virtuous character or a vicious character. And if so, and this is sort of your, goes back to your son's question that you bring up early in the book, why should I be a good boy?
0: Yeah, yeah, good, good. There's a lot there um, and, and lots to unpack. So you framed it as um, if happiness or if flourishing is a matter of desire fulfillment, then what are the implications? And uh, maybe I shouldn't care about virtue. So first of all i w- I would just reject the assumption right I, I don't I don't think happiness or flourishing is a matter of desire fulfillment um, that's that's one theory out there uh but one that I think has lots of problems and we could explore that um, i have you know I, I would have a different approach to 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 flourishing um, if though so you but you did ask me if that's the case so we have to hypothetically assume it is for the moment um, then then there's going to be a question of, okay, well, would virtue be more uh, conducive to desire fulfillment? Would vice be more conducive to desire fulfillment or neither? And that's a question I've not really thought much about. Um, It's a very tricky question. You might think that um, a vicious person would often have desires frustrated um, if they really want to, Lie, cheat, or steal, for example, but they can't get away with it, or they get caught and exposed. Um, that their desires end up go frustrated, and so it might be more conducive if you have virtuous desires to tell the truth, not cheat, not cheat, lie, and steal. Um, you might find that your desires would be would be satisfied more often. Um, I don't know. So that's that's a preliminary thought, but you know, on the more general question you asked. Just why, why virtue in general? Why care about that? Why is that important? Why, in the beginning of chapter two of the book, when my son asked me, should I become a virtuous person or become a, why be good, what would I say to that, my son? Well, my son's young, so I wouldn't give him the answer I'm about to give you, um, because but I have to put it in different terms. But a couple uh, answers come to mind about why I think virtue is just important outright. Um, One is that I think it's just good in and of of itself. I think something like honesty is just a good thing. Period. Full stop. It was what philosophers say is intrinsically good. Um, Secondly, in this context, it's probably appropriate to bring it up, uh, it's valued by all the major world religions. Um, So as far as I know, every major world religion, I'm not an expert, uh, but all the ones I've studied, at least, take virtue to be very important uh christianity you know being right at the top of that list uh, a third reason is that it's good for society so i think being a you want to live in a society where there are virtuous persons people they contribute to the overall flourishing and health and success of the society so that's that's the third reason and the fourth reason I'll, I'll give you and i'll stop um is the self-interested reason um, this is the reason that it's maybe sometimes good to start with, to get people interested in virtue, it benefits us. It's actually helps us in certain ways. Um, It's not the reason I would end with, I think it has to be more than this, but it just as a starting point. Well, you know, as you grow in virtue, there's some empirical evidence that it makes your life go better overall. Um, The more, the better person that you are, the better your life will go. So things like um, uh, increased mood, um, greater achievements, longer lifespan, better health, um, greater subjective well uh, happiness or contentment are correlated with measures of virtue. Um, so they go up as virtue goes up. So it actually could be in our self-interest, could be beneficial to us to become a more virtuous person. But I wouldn't want to... I, I could start with that to get people interested, but I wouldn't want to end with that because it makes... Um, it all about me and what benefits me. And that actually eventually will become an obstacle to becoming virtuous because being a really truly virtuous person can't all just be about me. It can't just be self-directed. It has to have um, other motives besides self-interest if you really want to become a virtuous person.
2: So. Right. That reminds me of uh, Peter Vandenwagen's book on, on the problem of evil, where he talks about the uh, story of the rich man and Lazarus and how Uh, you know, the rich man asks that Lazarus be raised from the dead and sent back to his brothers and Abraham's response is, you know, they have the law and the prophets, even if a man rose from the dead, it wouldn't change their minds. And the idea, I think Van Inwagen's take was something like, they're seeing this miracle would just cause them to reevaluate their retirement options. It wouldn't, it wouldn't change their character. And that's, that's what I think is so interesting. This, this discussion about character, Um, uh, you know, we, we generally feel like we're decent people. And and you you set up a you set up a list of strategies or or really conditions that you that you take into account for what what needs to work to change our characters and you mentioned some some that, that don't I don't want to go through the whole book here cuz I want people to still buy it but uh but you you mentioned you mentioned you mentioned some of the conditions and and the strategies you set up that don't really meet these conditions are uh things like uh not doing anything <laughs> one of my favorite ones um, <laughs> And uh, as, well as, as well as virtue labeling and so on and so forth. And it's interesting, the conditions that you set up, um, uh, one of them is, is the empirical element, uh, uh, which, which I think is interesting because uh, the point is we want some sort of evidence that, that, that this functions. Um, and yet, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not criticizing the book here, but at, at the end, you, you talk about the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit. And you have to sort of leave the empirical element here a little bit um, and so I guess when we 're talking about character and the changing of character, um, how far can empirical studies take us is there Is there a place um, for i guess something more like uh, contemplation or this philosophical element of kind of setting the empirical back and and trying to transform something else within us that maybe can 't be measured by the empirical? I know there's a sense in which that's not terribly useful because it's hard, it's harder to communicate or or to convince. Mm -hmm. Uh, But is there a place uh, for the, the, I guess, the, the non-empirical?
0: Yeah, that's good, so let me provide a little bit more more context too for people who haven't read the book. Um, And then let me try and tackle that. Uh, So towards the end after in the book, after I talk about what our situation is today, where I say most of us have a mixed character, I don't end the book there. I could have just stopped there and say, you know, you're not very good. Uh, I'm not very good. We're all not very good, and let's just go home. But I, I have a, a final third of the book, which tries to give us an optimistic send-off. So it's it's premised on the assumption that character can change. Um, if our character is just fixed, I would there's not much point in trying to do anything about it. Uh, but I do, do think there's overwhelming empirical evidence and also theological evidence and other kinds of evidence that character can change. Can can change, of course, in two different directions. It can get better. It can also get worse. So I try to outline some ideas about how to facilitate character growth. Some ideas are, I think, not very promising, like you said. I, I kind of put them to one side. Things like doing nothing or labeling people as good, even though they're not. That's an idea you can like, label my, my children as um, tidy or neat, even though they're not, to try and get them to become more tidy or, and neat. Um, that, that's a very interesting strategy. I label, um, myself,
2: but, I label myself good all the time. And it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't seem to work.
0: Uh, well, maybe you don't really believe it though. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so um, so then, then I put those aside and I also consider some secular strategies, which I think are more promising looking to exemplars and heroes and saints, for instance, um, having more reminders in our lives, uh, learning more about the obstacles to virtue in our psychology. And then the very last chapter, I I dive into some Christian ideas about character improvement. And you're right, that that chapter ends with a section on the Holy Spirit. And that definitely goes more uh, beyond what the empirical evidence can can really uh, get into. So when I talk about the um, importance of the empirical evidence, what I mean is, um, when we're outlining these different strategies, it would be nice to know if they actually work. Um, So it would be nice to have some empirical data to back up the hope that these are effective. It's one one thing to talk about having virtuous role models and exemplars and how that's really important but what if it turns out it doesn't actually make a difference? what if it doesn't, doesn't help us grow in character? That'd be really dis- surprising, and, but very disappointing too. Uh, but I would like to have some evidence backing it up. So you can run studies where you have a control group and you have an experimental group, and a control group is not exposed to, say, uh, exemplars, virtu- virtuous role models. And a, an experimental group is exposed to them, maybe over a period of, repeatedly over a period of time, And then you you get to the point where you can assess those two groups and see whether there's any difference or growth in their character as a result of this intervention or not. Mm -hmm. These are very hard studies to do. There are not many of them out there, Um, but I think they're, they're valuable and worth worth doing. So that's what I mean by empirical evidence. I like to see um, if we're going to spend all this time and money, it's ultimately going to be expensive too. Let's make sure we have some, some support for it. Now, you know, at the end of the day, uh, will the, it all be empirically tractable? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, so first of all, there's, there's the external behavior and then there's the internal psychology. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot harder to empirically discern someone's internal psychology. And a lot harder to do that than it is to look at their a- external behavior. Um, of course, you can ask them what they're thinking and feeling, but that's not always reliable. They could be um, deceived, or they could be lying to you, they're just going to not understand what their internal psychology is like. So there's limits to the empirical realm in that sense. There's also going to be limits when it comes to a more Christian discussion here of discerning the empirical contribution of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like a no-brainer to say that in one sense. I mean, it's, you're not going to be able to put the Holy Spirit to the, to the test, so to speak, and, and have you know, a control group and an experimental group, and this group gets the Holy Spirit and this one doesn't. And so let's see if that makes a big difference or not. I mean, that's not, <laughs> it, it's not going to work that way. Um, so I, I'm quite uh, okay with saying that there are limits to how far the empirical data can go, but I do think we shouldn't discount the importance of the empirical data either, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
1: So I have a question. It's more general for you. And then uh, of course, Travis can play off it. Why, why all of a sudden the sudden interest in character, I, I would assume in, in our culture, I mean, one, I point to uh, 12, 12 Rules of Life by Jordan Peterson, uh, even politically. We're, we're now, as Christians, we're, we're thinking about, well, what, what does character play in terms of leadership, especially in, in, you know, in terms of our, our president and those who hold the highest you know, places of authority? Uh, why why suddenly the interest uh, are you seeing more of an interest like when I, when i was in uh, was getting my doctorate uh, in ministry i mean virtue was a was a big thing for me i mean it was something that I, I was really interested in and i just went all in on the places where apologetics and character meet and then all of a sudden i was I mean, a door opened into in, a world in and a historical conversation about character But it just seems like lately over the last decade or so more people are thinking in terms of character matters uh are you seeing that as well
0: well it it depends on what what world we're talking about here Uh, okay and i i i I live mostly in the academic world of philosophy sure Um, so then what am i seeing there and then so let me give it a two-part answer what am i seeing there and then what am i seeing in the broader culture um in the world of philosophy Character has a long history. In fact, you know, the earliest philosophers were very, very centered on character. Plato, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, character was at the, at the heart of their thinking. And also in the Eastern tradition, Confucius and the Confucian tradition is the same way. Uh, that um, focus on character historically has ebbed and flowed. So for instance, in the 20th century, much of the 20th century, philosophers did not pay much attention to character at all. It was definitely relegated to the margins. Same thing in psychology, interestingly enough, as well. Uh, then there was in philosophy a big resurgence of interest in character in the 70s and especially in the 80s, due to the work of some very uh, influential people like Alistair McIntyre uh, and and others, Philip Afoot, Elizabeth Anscombe. Uh, so that today in philosophy, uh, character is, is right back up, up uh, you know mainstream. Uh, in the world of ethics, which is where I work in philosophy, uh, virtue and virtue ethics are, you know, is one of the leading approaches there is today. So I th- would agree with you there. that There's been a, definitely a resurgence. Um, in the culture at large, I'm probably not as well equipped to, to comment. Um, but it seems to me that there is the difference between the word character and just caring about character in some form or other. So sometimes the word character isn't used very much or the word virtue isn't used very much. These are sometimes seen as more antiquated words or concepts that we don't like, you know, see on TV very much or in music videos or wherever you, wherever you happen to be uh, getting your, your cultural influence. Um, but so I, I would say, um, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, there's been a downturn in the use of the terms. But uh, at the same time, what we're talking about is, I think, has always been very, very relevant. What we're talking about when we're talking about someone like cheater, being a cheater or lying or stealing all right? or being a leader um, or being cra- uh, uh, courageous or brave or cowardly, you know, um, that's all about character. And we care about that as uh, citizens of a country. We care about that when it comes to our leaders. We care about that in terms of our friends. Can we trust our friends, or will they betray us? We care about that as parents. I'm a parent as well. I have three children. uh, Raising our children to be a certain way. All this, even if we don't use those words character and virtue very much, it's all coming back to those concepts of character and virtue. It's clear in our daily lives we care about them a great deal.
2: Do you see elements of our of our culture that are perhaps in our culture that undermines certain develop cert, at least maybe certain characters? Because it seems like see certain virtues have kind of had their highlights in history. So you look at certain periods, maybe courage courage was the primary one, and maybe in ours compassion is is becoming more and more important. Um, but I wonder if there's certain elements of our society that that undermine it. In fact, one of the conditions that you have for character development, uh, for strategies for character development, is that it has to fit in with the uh, with how our lives are so busy, and, uh, and I wonder how much maybe the busyness of our lives is itself. That's kind of a loaded question, but maybe the busyness of our lives itself is part of it. So. And let me try to tie together with the cinnamon roll and the cookie thing, because I found that really fascinating. That when people, because one of the things you mentioned in the book is when people have these great smells, they do, they do kind things. Uh, they're more likely to do kind things. And uh, I wonder how much the smelling of, you know, I don't know, desserts, uh, baking, makes us, makes us slow down and recognize times of, of comfort and friendship and peace uh, and so, therefore, because we the world sort of trans—I mean, I don't know if you know Wittgenstein's Tractatus six six point four three—he <laughs> says the world of the happy man is completely other than that of the of the unhappy one, and the idea is something that in that moment of smelling the cinnamon roll or whatever, you suddenly are are put into a different world where the busyness and the pressures that are that you feel all around you sort of fade away, and you're able to see your neighbor and care for your neighbor. Um, I just, I wonder if there's, I know we can't make everything smell like cinnamon rolls, even though that wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, but I guess, is there, is there some strategy there about training ourselves to maybe see the world as if it always smells like cinnamon rolls?
0: <laughs> That's great. Um, so a so t- couple parts to that. Um, let, me, let me take them uh, in order. Uh, are there virtues that emphasize more so than others? Uh, historically and and today, absolutely. Um, so popularity of virtues ebbs and flows. To, to take a really clear example of that, um, chastity uh, was considered a virtue in the Victorian period, uh, emphasized very heavily. Um, these days, you know, probably most people don't know that word or what it means. Um, so that's a, an example. Uh, humility is another example. Uh, humility is not on Aristotle's list of virtues. Uh, it is, of course, in the Christian tradition, a virtue. Nietzsche does not consider it a virtue. Um, it goes up and down. So political leaders today, you might think that they're not, uh, not known for their humility often. Um, so that I think I'll, I'll definitely emphasize that point. Um, are there certain conditions in society which work against virtue? Um, absolutely. Uh, one, I, I, you know, one easy, I think, uh, answer to that is so- social media. Um, I think it's, it's pretty clear that things like Facebook and other forms of social media are not virtue-conducive or virtue-promoting. Um, if anything, they're the opposite. Um, they foster things like envy and resentment, um, sometimes anger. Uh, so there, so there's, there's definitely examples of that working against virtue in our society. Now, on the cinnamon one, one, so let me first tell you the, the listeners a little bit more about the study to get the context. And then I I might take it and spin it in a different direction than than you wanted to go. Um, So this is a study that was done by a, 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 a psychologist. This is now about 15 years ago, where there was a control group who was shopping in a mall. They passed clothing stores, and then were given an opportunity to help. There's another group, which is the experimental group. These were just shoppers in the same mall. They didn't know that they were, none of these people knew they were part of a study. They were just shopping. This other group were people who had passed Mrs. Fields Cookies or Cinnabons, and they were then given the same opportunity to help individually. In the first group, the the ones who had passed the clothing stores, helping averaged about 15%. In the second group, those who passed Mrs. Fields Cookies or Cinnabons, helping averaged about 60%. So 60 versus 15%. And this study has been replicated. So if you've heard about what's going on in psychology, there's a big replications crisis right now in psychology where people are worried, worried about these studies and whether they're actually um, you know, they're, they're solid or not. And this one has been replicated. So uh, this is astounding. I mean, it's very, very surprising that the only relevant environmental variable that's changed is the smell. And yet the uh, effect is significantly more helping behavior. Now here's where I may take things in a different direction than you were, um, because it doesn't seem like those shoppers uh, consciously noticed or reflected upon the smell and how that put them in a different mindset, which le- enabled them to help. It's not clear that they, you know, had the smell and then they were reminded of some like you know, childhood moment when they were cooking with their mother in the, in the kitchen. Um, the leading story about what's going on here is that subconsciously, the smell had an impact in terms of giving rise to a good mood. And then the good, the, uh, furthermore, there was a desire to maintain that good mood, to keep the good mood going. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and lo and behold, here's an opportunity to help, which would enable me to keep the good mood going, to stay in the good mood. And so people were more inclined to help. Um, that's all subconscious. Um, so I'm I'm now you could still say, well, it would be nice if there were more environmental influences like that, which at least subconsciously l- helped us behave better. Um, and I, I I probably agree with that as well. Um, but it's not as rosy of a picture as I think you were you were hoping it would be. Um, is is, is where I want to end my response with. Yeah, you,
2: you mentioned nudgings as a, uh, I think this kind of what fits into the nudging section mm-hmm. as a not very promising, um, but
0: uh, uh, yeah, so. Uh, yeah, that, that's right. So for listeners who aren't familiar with, with nudging, um, so nudging is often when there are uh, environmental features, which kind of, as the name suggests, nudge you in a certain direction um, without forcing you to t- go in that direction. So they're kind of trying to influence you to behave a certain way, but while still giving you choice. Mm-hmm. So one uh, famous example of this is whether to be a uh, an uh, organ donor or not. And in the U.S., uh, you're, it, it's automatically assumed that you're not going to be one, and you have to opt in to become an organ donor. But in France, it's the opposite. Uh, you start out as an organ donor, and you opt out. And so it, France is trying to nudge people to be organ donors because they're Piggybacking on the assumption that people are going to are typically reticent to change the status quo, even though they have the freedom, still the freedom to do so. Many people just kind of stick with the status quo and will behave better as a result. Um, In this discussion, we're having the smell serves as a nudge, Um, it doesn't force you, it doesn't take away your free will, which whether to help or not, but it does influence you in a certain direction uh, and it leads to better behavior. Um, So, that yes, it is a nudge like that, but it's not a virtuous nudge, um, because even though the behavior might be better, which is great, I mean, of course, I, we, want, we want better behavior in general, the underlying motivation is still questionable. Um, it's, mm-hmm. I'm going to help so as to maintain my good mood, to stay positive, feeling positive. That's not virtuous. That's all about me. I'm helping in order to make me feel good, as opposed to helping for the right reasons, like because the person is in need of help. So it doesn't get us to virtue.
1: That's good. So, I mean, this is why we'd love to have you back, especially Travis on his side at uh, wandering towards wisdom so that we can maybe drill deeper in some of this other stuff, but we'll end here. So we're primarily an apologetic and theological organization, specifically apologetic, um, I wanted to ask you a question, if character matters, is there space in a place for us to look at how character affects how we process and reflect on the information? Uh, I was, um, had the privilege to preach this past uh, weekend in South Alabama and was just I preached from First Timothy 2, uh, considering it's, at this point in time, it was right before the election. Um, but I was captivated by Paul always making a point to saying, oh, you want unity? You want, you want to be, don't be distracted by people that are dealing in, you know, endless genealogies and myths, and they just want to speculate, uh, because the goal is what he considered love. You know, he said in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So everything there is loaded together, how you think, how you act, and how you live in the world. And it seems to me in the tradition that I am, which is Southern Baptist, I'm a Southern Baptist ordained pastor, uh, we don't think in terms of how character informs how we act in the world and how we think. Um, is there any academic studies going on about, uh, like specifically, I did a study on humility and apologetics. Uh, what does it mean to have a humble, kind of a humble, I'll use your word, a humble disposition, and how does that affect how we process information? Uh, you think that's important because I think it's bodily important for people in the church to remember that character matters incredibly
0: uh, absolutely i sir I, I would I would completely agree that character matters in general. it seems clear that it matters a great deal in the New Testament uh the fruit of the spirit is all about character um so Paul's very clear about particular character traits um so i I think it's you know to me it's it's uncontroversial that character matters a lot and that promoting good character is both intrinsically important and also has very good consequences or outcomes or benefits. Now, the, the specific aspect of your character was about character and thinking. Um, how, do, how does character impact our thinking about the world? And so it, it, character impacts a bunch of things. So it impacts our behavior. It impacts our emotions and how we feel about the world and our motivations why we do what we do. But you're asking specifically about how does character impact our thinking? And there, I think it's clear that, that it does too. And there's, pl- there's plenty of research in philosophy on this. Um, in fact, there's even an entire s- discipline in philosophy called, and here's, here's gonna be some jargon. Um, so I apologize in advance. It's called virtue epistemology. Um, so this is uh, where our, when we think about thinking, How can virtue help us think about thinking? And then, what's the importance of developing intellectual virtues as well as moral virtues? So, virtues that help us get closer to the truth. Those would be intellectual virtues, as well as moral virtues, which have to do with how to live our lives, how our behavior. So, um, let's now make that less abstract. Maybe we can just, uh, uh, I can wrap this up by trying to make it, um, give it a couple examples. So, In the case of someone who's compassionate, for instance, they need to be able to recognize where the suffering is in the world, And then their thinking needs to be attuned to the appropriate considerations in their environment, needs to be able to pick up on whether someone's suffering or not, and not be distracted by irrelevant considerations. Like whether the person is white or black, or whether the person is rich or poor, things like that. If the person is suffering and in need of help, they need to be helped, right? Whether they're Samaritan or not, so um, that that's irrelevant. The virtuous person, here the compassionate person, picks up on what matters. This is a human being, put it in Christian terms, made the image of God, who's suffering, and That needs to be addressed, right? So that would be an example of how compassion has a very important intellectual component to it. Um, Honesty works the same way, right? I need to be able to, in my circumstances, discern what is the truth and what is a lie, what would be an authentic response, what would be a misleading response, I need to be able to be sensitive to... um, how to convey my words in a way that's helpful and uplifting and supportive, versus a way that, even though it's honest, could be cold or harsh or brutal. And this is all a matter of thinking, again, right way. So an honest person, of course, uh, behaves a certain way, but as a reflection of how they understand the world in a deep manner, picking up on the right considerations and ignoring the irrelevant considerations. So I hope that makes sense. I hope it speaks to what you were asking about.
1: Oh, it does. So we're we're talking to Dr. Christian uh, Miller. He's the AC Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University. Thank you so much. I'm telling you, this is a great read. It's a great read for those of you who listen. Uh, if, if this is going to be one that I, I I give to people, or at least suggest to pastors who are talking to me who want to who want to get into this area, want to think about this area, and and I'll tell you what I, I spend a lot of time with pastors, uh, Dr. Miller, and character is important, and and a lot of pastors want to see the church be a place where they're developing it, but maybe first we need to go back to first things and be reminded what it is to begin with, and your work is doing that well. I, Thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, Thank you. uh, You actually have a book coming out, uh, forthcoming, called Honesty, the Philosophy of Psychology of Neglected Virtue. Would love to have you back on to talk about that when it comes out. Uh, But, you know, I hope everything goes out well for the rest of the year for you. I hope you have a great holiday season uh, coming up. And thank you again for uh, taking time out for
0: us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your interest in my work. Thank you for the very kind words. And I definitely would uh, be happy to come back and talk some more.